Take your Bibles this morning and turn to the Gospel of Luke. We are going to begin a new book study today. Uh, the Gospel according to Luke. Uh, no promises how long we'll stay here. It's 24 chapters and you know at my preaching it may take uh, <laughs> many, many years to cover 24 chapters. So we're just going to take it one day at a time. Amen. See how far we go. Um, as I was prayerfully considering what message to bring today, I, I have to be honest with you, I was really torn. I, I'm kind of been back and forth. and um, Even last night through the night, I, I woke with several things on my heart and mind and, and just praying. and, and um, So we may rabbit trail in the middle of this message today. And if we do, I'll trust that it'll be a providential one. Um, but uh, I just I want to make sure I deliver the message the Lord wants me to deliver. And, uh, I, you know, I, I think like a lot of us, the past couple of weeks, I'm still a bit in a, a tailspin, if you will, but um, we uh, leave these things in God's hands and trust and hold, hold strong to Him and move forward. And uh, so this morning, I want us to, to move forward in the gospel according to Luke and see what, see what God has in store for us as we embark on this journey uh, through, through this study. I'm not going to do a whole lot in the way of background. A lot of times, you know, when we start a new book study, I'll give you a, a lot of background material. I'm not going to do that this morning. Uh, I am going to go ahead and take my jacket off, though, because it's hot. Yeah, I got amen on that one. Yeah, today's message, you think it's hot here. Anyways, that joke never gets old. I like that joke. I don't care who you are. That's funny stuff, as Lynn Sanders would say, hiding in the back somewhere. All right. Uh, gospel according to Luke. You know, if I ask you, tell me something about Luke. Probably couldn't give me a whole lot, could you? What's the one thing we would all probably say about Luke? He's a physician. He's a, physician. He's a doctor. Yeah. How did I know y'all was going to say that? Yeah, that's one thing that we know and understand about this writer. He, he was a physician. He was... Uh, a doctor? You know, if he's a doctor, he must know what he's talking about. And, and in this case, he does. <laughs> um, but there's not a lot known about Luke, is there? And really, when we do a comparative study of some of the others, not a whole lot that we know about him. But that is one thing that we do know. We also know this. This is the first in a... Uh, two-volume set, if you will, of his writings. The Gospel according to Luke, and then the second part of that writing is actually the book of Acts. He wrote both of those. And it was probably actually, you know, we kind of look at it that way, a two-volume set, if you will. Um, he was a physician. It may, maybe you didn't understand this about him. He is the only Gentile writer in the New Testament. As far as his, his writing, uh, he, was a, he was a Gentile writer, uh, which is, explains a lot when you read through the Gospel of Luke. And for most of us, uh, we probably relate a little better in our understanding when it comes to the book 
of Luke in the book of Acts. And that's, again, his writing was not to the Jewish audience. He was a Gentile. He was a companion of Paul. That's why you find in Acts, he's traveling and writing. And, um, but he was a companion of Paul. He wrote almost one-third of the New Testament. That's as much as Paul wrote. So this guy, Luke, pretty impacting upon the New Testament. And in his day as well. Luke's the most comprehensive gospel when it comes to the gospels. Luke is the most universal gospel. Uh, One of the reasons, probably a lot of us would gravitate, he puts the Gentiles in a more um, favorable light, if you would, in his writings, in comparison to some of the other writings. Luke's gospel is one of the most uh, interested as far as when it comes to the roles of like women and children and social outcasts. Luke in his writing, tends to, again, uh, paint favorable light in that direction, a little more emphasis in that area than the other writers. And again, that makes sense when you understand where he's coming from, his background. The Gospel of Luke is the one most interested in prayer in comparison to the other Gospels. He has seven different references to Jesus praying that are found in this gospel alone. So there again, that that, uh, gives us an insight into into him. Uh, There's definitely a focus upon prayer. Luke's gospel is the one with the most emphasis on the Holy Spirit and on joy in comparative terms. Luke's gospel is the one with the most emphasis on preaching the good news, the gospel. This term, the gospel, is used ten times in this gospel and only once in any other gospel, as well as 15 additional times in the book of Acts. You think he had a heart for the gospel? I think so. Well, let's take a look at the text. Let's uh, begin our reading in chapter 1, verse 1, realizing here is Luke, the Gentile writer, writing these words. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judah, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughter of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord, and the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour 
of incense. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also be before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them, and they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So it was, as soon as the days of his service were completed, that he departed to his own house. Now after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Father, I, I pray that you allow me to be a vessel today. Lord, that you might speak through me to the hearts of every listener. Lord, I ask for your wisdom. I ask for your guidance. And again, Lord, your thoughts, your words. And we'll give you the praise today in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 1 and we didn't cover all of it. I, this is, again, just sort of the, the beginning aspect. And I know I covered a lot of text there. Forgive me, I'm, I'm, I'm having to drink a lot of water this morning. And no, it's not because my sermon's dry. Though it may be. That joke never gets old either. Um, I've had this allergy stuff, and so it's really hard to, to keep uh, uh, talking. <laughs> I know that's hard to believe um, from me. But notice in this text, Luke starts off, and, and, and I want you to kind of understand here in the beginning some things that are going on. In Luke's introduction in his gospel, it's not something that we would pick up immediately just reading it here in, in, in your Bible or my Bible. Some of you may have some notes that may mention this. And, it, and I, I, I'm going to highlight, it's just kind of an interesting thing um, that I found when I was studying it. The first four verses are one sentence in the original Greek. And in the original Greek, and you've got to understand, when, when I studied Greek in college, um, 
we study what's called Koine Greek. That's the way the New Testament was written. It was basically the common man's language during the day. It was the average Joe's language. But the first four verses of this are not written that way. He didn't use Koine Greek. He used classical Greek. And, and that's, I think it's significant um, because that's how you would have written um, if you were writing ac- academically. And hence, he's a doctor, you know. So this was sort of, he started off the first four verses in the classical way as if to bring a little um, attention to it. And I know this is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But he doesn't continue in the language of the scholars. But after verse 4, he transitions into the average man's tongue in his language. And I think that's, personally as I was reading that, I thought that was kind of significant. Um, now you can look into that, what that may mean or may not mean. Um, but I, I found it interesting and wanted to share that as a, as a side note. Um, he uses the common man's language uh, of the village and the street. And, uh, and he says in this, uh, notice, "...inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us." In other words, what he's writing, it's already been talked about. It's already been written. There's probably a lot of writings at this point in time when he pens this that have already been circulated. Some of those uh, would have been just uninspired writings. Because, I mean, something like this doesn't just happen and people not talk about it. You know? That's like a news story that, that happens today that's pretty significant. Everybody's talking about it. Everybody's writing about it. And this is the case here. And so... When Luke starts in, he says, you know, look, I, I know a lot of people have already taken up to write about this. And, um, and, and he says, you know, they, they put together kind of a narrative of those things which have been, a field, have been fulfilled among us. And uh, he, again, referencing here the, the culmination of, of Old Testament fulfillment in the person of Christ. And he says, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, and ministers of the word delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus. Now, here again, let's get some context to what's going on. Who's this guy he's writing to? He's writing to uh, uh, this gentleman, Theophilus, and we'll see that uh, you know, he's also mentioned other places in Scripture. But one of the things I want to note about Theophilus, and, 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 and you can again do some homework there on your own time and, and kind of discover who, who he is, but um, he possibly was someone uh, part of Caesar's household. He obviously, with the term most excellent, you know, uh, was probably a man who was prestigious. You know, it's like we, we refer to most excellent Lynn Sanders. You know, we've, we've used that reference. He's not here. For, where's he? I need to be picking on him today. You know. All right. Um, but here he's writing and he says, you know, th- th- these things, these accounts, we, I want to put them in an orderly fashion. I want to give you uh, my understanding. And he's been with eyewitnesses. This isn't like, um, you know, uh, stuff is just 
gossip down the grapevine. He most certainly has been with a number of people um, that have that were there and, and, and were eyewitnesses in regards to, to some of these things. Well, let's, let's move on. He, he said, uh, by the way, it's highly likely that he you know, had spent time in, in uh, knowing that uh, not only these were written as uninspired, but they were also, and I, when I say uninspired, those extra writings of the day. But those that were inspired, Mark, Matthew, those that are in the Bible... Those he had first-hand account of. So he's, he's got all of that going on in his day. These things were commonly believed amongst Christians, some of the stuff that he's going to put into this text. So it wasn't really anything new. He wanted to give his account on it. And he does. And he does begin to, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, give us more of a fulfilling look at the life of Christ, especially from the Gentile perspective. So, um, notice what happens, though, in verse... Well, let's start back in 4. He said that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. He wanted to give them the confidence that what they were believing in, they weren't believing in in vain. You know, that's what we do a lot of times. One of the reasons I enjoy doing the apologetics conference that we do every year. It's because I want you to be encouraged in your faith. And when we bring in these guys who, who, who are, who've dedicated their lives on things like the resurrection, and that's, we know, they know all kinds of things about uh, the studies and, and, and on the resurrection. We bring in somebody who's, who's done their homework and they are really versed and, and dug out the information, pun intended, on archaeology. They, these, you know, I want to bring these guys into you to equip you so that you can get first-hand information, and that strengthens you in your faith. That helps us. And this is what Luke's doing. And so he's putting together an orderly account when he begins to write this, and he begins to share this. And you think about, again, the whole context from Luke 1 all the way to the end of Acts, and all that vital information that's going to be shared amongst Christians and circulated. Yeah, he's writing to Theophilus, but this wasn't just to Theophilus. This was to be shared amongst others. So notice what happens. He says, verse 5, There was in the days of Herod the king of Judea a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. I can't read that without chuckling. My wife knows where I'm going with this story. When I was in Bible college, my mentor, Mr. P. Trapala, old man, Mr. P., he, uh, he was not real, he's like me sometimes, gets names mixed up. By the way, I apologize if I call you the wrong name sometime. I think it must be a, like a pastoral thing, it just happens. But uh, anyway, Mr. P. used to call people the wrong names sometimes. And uh, he said, hey, Kent and Elizabeth, you know, and Allison was Elizabeth, but anyway, it's uh uh, here's Elizabeth, and it's no, it's not my wife, Allison. But, um, and, and so you find here, he's writing about this guy, Zacharias. And Zacharias was in the days of Herod. Now, we're getting into the Christmas season. You know, you've heard Herod, 
you, you've heard that name thrown around, and, and uh, if you want to do some extra biblical study, you will be amazed at how horrendous this guy was. I mean, he was pretty, pretty wicked. Um, but he was known as Herod the Great. There wasn't too much great about him. He was known, though, for uh, his, his buildings. He had spectacular buildings uh, that, uh, that were erected under his watch, Herod. And uh, he was not a descendant of Israel. Uh, he was actually of Jacob's brother Esau, that line, the Edomites. And um, he, he was, uh, again, known for his buildings, but he was more known for his cruelty, his paranoid cruelty, which actually drove him to execute many, uh, even his own family members. And so um, he ends up uh, making sure that people would mourn at his funeral, so he uh, ends up torching the own, his own place with his family members and people inside so that the others would cry and mourn for those that died with him. But anyway, that's, uh, that's another story. But So here you have this guy introduced in Luke's writing named Zacharias. He lives in the day of this evil tyrant, and we begin to understand this character, Zacharias. Notice what it says about him in the text. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron. Now, first off, Zacharias is of a division of the Abijah. Now, that was, if you go back, I think, in Chronicles, you'll find uh, different mentions of uh, basically the tribes as they were diverse and spread out. They had certain ones... Um, and by this point in time, there's probably thousands that would serve in the temple, and they had to take turns in a certain lineage or of this line or of, the, of that line. And so uh, here is Zacharias. He's of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and, um, and her name was Elizabeth. So they were, we notice this about them. They were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. Now, I don't know about you, but I read that, and that tells me a lot about this couple. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. Now, we're getting a, a portrait of these people. Um... Can you imagine? Again, here's this couple. They seem to be very dedicated to the things of God, very committed to the cause of Christ. Uh, well, at this point, they don't know... Uh, they, well, they no doubt know the Lord. They are righteous people. And here's what begins to, to take place in this situation. They, uh, his, his term comes up. It's time for him to do his, his duty within the temple. And notice what happens. Verse 8. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. 
I want us to get a picture of what's going on here. Let me read for you um, a very descriptive um, account of this passage. Uh, This is from David Guzik. See if you can. If you've tuned out, tune back in because I want us to really imagine. Here's this godly couple, older in age, no child. By the way, why is that even mentioned in there? Well, we'll find out later, but during this time, and you look through the Old Testament, a lot of times it was viewed as um, by people as being um, not having God's favor. You know, you were blessed back in the Old Testament days if, you know, if your, if your quiver was full, so to speak. And so, you and I know people can't be cruel. People? Cruel? Never. Of course. You know, there's a lot of ignorance that's bliss even in our own day, right? Um, I know when I was first uh, exposed to the church, and, and I remember one thing that was taught in my young generation, and it's a blight on this country, was that interracial couples, that was, oh, that was forbidden. Black and white, that was, that was oh, no, no, that was taboo. You dare not do that. And people would actually try and use the Bible to make that point. That's ignorance, folks. If you grew up in that and you were taught that, that's ignorance. That's tradition. That's not truth. That's not truth. That's tradition. And what they would say is, well, Moses, he got judged because he, you know, Zipporah. And they, you know, that's why. No, 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 no. God's whole point in the Old Testament about intermarriage was about like-minded faith. Israel was not to mingle with anyone outside of their faith. They had the true God. And what people needed to it should have been concerned about in this country for years is not that foolish thing. They should have been concerned about is whether or not my child is courting, dating, whatever you do in your home, a believer, a spiritually growing, maturing believer. That's the truth of the Scriptures. We don't want foolish traditions. We want truths. They're struggling in Luke's day with a foolish tradition. They don't have a child. They must be cursed. And we'll see how this weighs on Elizabeth as we proceed forward. But anyway, listen to this account from David Guzik. Here is Zacharias getting ready to go serve his call, his point, the the lot. Even the casting of lots belongs to the Lord, fell upon him to burn incense when he went into the temple. Now, this is according to the law of Moses. Incense was to, uh, was to be offered to God on the golden altar every morning and every evening. By this time, there was an established ritual for the practice. So, this wasn't anything new, but I can tell you this it was a once in a lifetime. Opportunity. And Zacharias, 
His, it was His turn. And the lot fell to Him to enter in, to go into this place, the Holy of Holies, go into the temple and actually be able to burn incense. <sighs> Listen to this account. There were several lots cast to determine who did what at the morning sacrifice. The first lot determined who would cleanse the altar and prepare its fire. The second lot determined who would kill the morning sacrifice and sprinkle the altar, the golden candlestick, and the altar of incense. The third lot determined who would come and offer incense. This was the most privileged duty. Those who received the first and second lots would repeat their duty at the evening sacrifice, but not with the third lot. To offer the incense would be a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Before dawn, hundreds of worshipers gathered at the temple. The morning sacrifice began when the incense priest walked toward the temple through the outer courts. He struck a gong like an instrument known as the magrapha. At at this sound, the Levites assembled and got ready to lead the gathered people in songs of worship to God. The other two priests, chosen by Lot that morning, walked up to the temple on each side of the priest chosen to offer the incense. All three entered the holy place together. One priest set burning coals on the golden altar. The other priests arranged the incense so it was ready to go. Then those two priests left the temple and the incense priest was left all alone in the holy place. In front of him was the golden altar of incense. It was 18 inches square and 3 feet high. On that small table lay the burning coal with little wisps of smoke rising up ready for the incense. Behind the golden altar was a huge, thick curtain, and behind that curtain was the Holy of Holies, the most holy place where no man could enter except the high priest, and that only on the Day of Atonement. As he faced the golden altar of incense, to his right would be the table of showbread, and to his left would be the golden lampstand, which provided the only light for the holy place. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. When the people outside saw the two men exit the temple, they knew that the time to offer the incense had come. Those hundreds of people bowed on or kneeled before the Lord and spread their hands out in silent prayer. They knew that at that moment the incense priest prayed in the holy place in the very presence of God for the entire nation. There followed several minutes of dead silence in all the temple precincts. As Zacharias lingered in prayer in the holy place during this, the most solemn experience of his life, the connection between the burning of incense and prayer might seem strange to some, but it, in, in the Bible, the burning of incense is a strong picture of prayer. What did Zacharias pray for? What did he pray for? He must have thought about it carefully beforehand. He may have even taken out a prayer list. Though it is more likely he memorized it. 
He also knew how long to pray because he had attended the morning sacrifice as a worshiper many times before. And he knew how long the incense priest stayed in the temple. He must have prayed for both needs of the nation of Israel, which was occupied and oppressed by the hated Romans. He must have prayed for God to send the Messiah. He probably would have thought it wrong to throw in his personal needs at such a holy moment. Look back in your text, verse 11. Just at that moment, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid. Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God." You know, think about it. Here's Zacharias. He's probably praying with his eyes closed tight. And he opens them up and there's an angel standing there. Zacharias was scared. Or as we say around here, he was scared. He was troubled. But what does the angel say to him? Notice what the angel said. The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. Wait a minute. Was that what he was praying? Was that what Zacharias was praying in the temple? I think not. In fact, I know not, because if we keep reading the text, notice what happens. Notice what happens a little bit later on in this account. Verse 18, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute. They're not able to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their own time. He wasn't asking that prayer. Not at that point in time. Oh, but I can only imagine how many times their hearts cried out to the Lord. God heard that prayer. God hears those prayers. He doesn't always answer them in our time or in the way we might think. But God hears those prayers. And in this case, he tells this, and I, you know, I'm sure there's some scholars out here who have done the homework who could probably guesstimate how old they were. But they weren't spring chickens. And Zacharias doubts. And it's a mild rebuke, I guess, if you could call it that. I mean, although I'd hate to go around for 
you know, nine months <laughs> not being able to talk. Oh boy, that would be terrible for me anyway. Maybe not so much for you, but, but Zacharias had a bit of doubt. You know, I don't know what Zacharias was thinking. I mean, I get, are you kidding me? Uh, you know? They'd probably given up on this prayer years ago. Zacharias had no idea that God would answer the two greatest desires of his heart at once. Think about it. The two greatest desires of his heart answered at once. He'd probably completely given up. He, he, he probably had no hope. That was crushed over the years of disappointment. But God haven't, God had not given up on them, even though Zacharias and Elizabeth probably had given up on God answering their prayer. Most importantly, John, uh, the name of the child that was to come, and by the way, isn't that interesting? You notice here, this is a little side note for you, you can do with it what you want. But this child that Elizabeth is going to have, it says that he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And we know this to be John the Baptist later. But it says that uh, he will neither drink wine nor strong drink, which again, I think here's Luke's background. This is the Nazarite vow, but he doesn't go into the whole not cutting the hair and things of that nature. Because again, his audience is not a Jewish audience. He's not going to captivate all of that. He just sort of hits some highlights of the Nazarite vow. But notice he said he will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Hmm. That's unusual, isn't it? Calvin likes that passage, by the way. I'll leave that one alone. (laughs) So, anyways, moving forward. He is filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Well, let me give you one of Calvin's quotes, just to let you chew on it a little more. Let us learn by this example, that from the earliest infancy to the latest old age, the operation of the Spirit in men is free. That's Calvin's quote. In other words, it's not earned, folks. Salvation is not earned. It's free. His ministry would be to turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He would prepare the way for the Messiah by turning their hearts to God. He would be likened to Elijah, the prophet Elijah, who was prophesied that he would go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. That was said about John. Jesus later said this was fulfilled in John. It's interesting because he uses this phrase. He says that he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. That is actually a quote from Malachi 4, 5 through 6. It's meaningful for more than its reference to Elijah. These were essentially the last words in the Old Testament. And now God's revelation is resuming exactly where it had left off. 
Significant. Very significant. Elijah was a man who called Israel to a radical repentance. So, verses 18 through 20. Zacharias, he, he, he doubts. He goes mute as a result. Someone said that when we do not believe God's promises for our lives, we do not necessarily destroy the promise, but we do destroy our ability to enjoy the promise. Did you hear that? When we do not believe God's promises for our lives, we do not necessarily destroy the promise, but we do destroy our ability to enjoy the promise. One of the things that I am learning in my studies and my counseling is this, and it applies to every single one of you sitting in this room. It applies to me. It applies to all of us. You know why we struggle? You know why you struggle in your walk? You know why you struggle in your spiritual growth? Do you know why we struggle in immaturity and the things of God? Because we never really truly stay at the cross. We never exchange our life for the life that's been laid down for us. Oh yeah, we want the salvation through the death, the burial, the resurrection, but we ignore the resurrection. In other words, we've been set free from the bondage, but we don't live in the victory. Too often times you and I are struggling with whatever it is you struggle with because we refuse to let it go at the cross of Calvary. We don't know our identity in Christ. We don't take up... In other words, I don't exchange my life for Him. And when we choose to walk and do things in the flesh, we're not fulfilling by walking in the power of the Spirit. So, we hang on to things instead of exchanging those things. We live in our own strength instead of yielding to what God desires to do in our lives because quite often suffering and pain is not something you and I want to endure or go through. And sometimes the answer that you and I know is so evident, we don't want that route, we want another. So just give me a pill that will be a quick fix. That numbs my symptoms instead of curing it. And sometimes the pill you and I are taking is materialism, it's, it's pleasurable things of this world, it's whatever. Put it in any capsule you want to, but that's what we're swallowing as opposed to the truth of God's Word that sets you and me free. The exchanged life. My life for the life Christ has given on my behalf. If we can really grab hold of that, you talk about experiencing uh, uh, freedom. So, Zacharias goes mute. You know what made this a severe punishment? Can you imagine what made this the most severe punishment? (laughs) He had some good news to tell. I mean, you know, he runs out and he's... You know, I don't know why he's trying. He's trying to do his best to describe he's seen an angel. And You know, strangely, many Christians would not consider this a punishment. They don't mind keeping quiet about the good news. 
Sad but true. Pastor Daryl Klein's thoughts, uh, and I probably should wrap this up. Notice what happened, and I'll share this quote here in just a second. But let's let's finish out the story here because I want to try to bring this together and make sense of it. Um, Notice verse 21. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple. For he he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So it was, as soon as the days of his service were completed, that he departed to his own house. Now after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Hmm. Listen to what Pastor Daryl Klein's thoughts are in regards to Elizabeth. Why did she leave? Why is that there? Why did she go away for five months? What is meant by her words that follow? The statement indicates what has been for Elizabeth the most painful part of the lifelong barrenness. The shame among men. Not the absence of children in her home. The most painful thing is too strong to overcome by faith in her husband's strange tale and her own experience of its incipient fulfillment. This is a revelation of the hardness of human hearts. So self-protective that even in the face of strong evidence of God's grace, there's a significant hesitation to go public with praise. The problem seems to boil down to this. It is a matter of faith as to whether we shall be exalted or not. And it's a matter of misplaced love to want that exaltation, to want that exaltation before the time. It's not wrong to feel the humiliation that men are willing to heap upon us. It's not wrong to desire that God would correct those who are willing to do this to us. The error, the error is in buying into the implications of the humiliation so that we lose the sense of God's pleasure with us. Accepting men's attitudes as a reflection of God's? Even when God is displeased with us because we have lapsed into unbelief and a false love and become proud or despairing, His, ple- His, displeasures, His displeasures moves Him to correct us, not despise us. Men despise those they look down upon because they are attempting to elevate themselves in the eyes of themselves and others. But God has no such motivation. His motivation is life. Theirs is death. You know, I don't know. I can only imagine what Zacharias and Elizabeth dealt with for years, many years because they were older in age. And the pressure of society and all the things that they dealt with. But yet they stayed faithful to the things of God. They held strong to the promises of God. And even in the midst of that great blessing, there was a sense of waver. 
a moment of doubt, and I think that's normal. I think it's the way we all are. But yet God is still a very present help and desiring to bless, and He does. And we're going to find out what great blessings lay in store as we proceed through this account that will lead us to the cross. Let me type some of this for you. My rabbit trail, I never went on. And we may get there. I know I went on a few, but not the one I thought I would be led on. But I will share this. I think there's a great model for our homes in this couple. They were God-fearing. They had a love for the things of God, the people of God, the service of God. God's will is done in their life. I don't know where you are. I don't know uh, what's going on in your life, your struggles, your situation, your home, whatever the case. But I know this. God's words to be believed. And His promises you can stand confident in. And these things are pinned down for you and I so that our faith can be strengthened. And we need not waver in the face of circumstances. Because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their own time. God's got a plan. Aren't you thankful we're a part of it? Let's pray. Father, bring comfort. Bring peace. Bring strength, confidence to all of our circumstances. Lord, let us look to you in unwavering faith. I know it's human to doubt, and sometimes it's difficult. And no one really quite understands, other than you, what we deal with. The pressures of society and thoughts of others and man, and and just, Lord, let all that fall to the side. It doesn't really matter. Only what you think. Only what you know. Help me to rest in you. Help me to have confidence in you. Lord, let that be the prayer of many around this room today. Those maybe listening via the radio. Let our confidence be in you and you alone. You control the circumstances. And Lord, you bring things to pass in your time. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for hearing our prayers knowing the desires of our heart. Father, help us to continue to bring our burdens that weigh us down to the foot of the cross.